0: So this is the first Sunday of Lent, the six-week season of the church calendar that began on Ash Wednesday and continues until Easter, where each year we take part in Jesus' journey to the cross, remembering that the light of redemption shines brightest in the darkness, that to truly experience the power of resurrection on Easter Sunday, we must first experience and walk the painful journey of Lent and Good Friday. Each year, we follow Jesus to the cross through fasting and repentance, sacrificing and laying down things in our lives, not just out of obedience, moroseness, or shame, but so we can truly experience resurrection on Easter. What I like to call the practice of fasting from brokenness in order to fast to healing. Thus, at E3, Each year, we challenge our community to use this Lent season as one of self-reflection, where we get real about our brokenness in order to ask what it might mean to follow Jesus to the cross, to lay that brokenness down there and to experience new life in whatever area that might be on Easter morning. And that will be no different this year. Because today we kick off our Lent series, Open Your Eyes, where we're going to look at a section from the Gospel of Matthew that speaks to a unique kind of brokenness that we're often blind to, but one that is crucially important. One that Jesus challenges us to see and repent from if we're going to become who he calls us to be. We're going to explore How Lent might invite us to fast from this kind of brokenness, to experience resurrection within it on Easter, to find new life on the other side. And y'all, I'm going to be honest straight up. I think this series is going to be challenging, but I also think it has the potential to be powerful if we're open and willing to hear what Jesus has to say. But... Before I introduce the text and the focus, I'm going to build a little intrigue, because I want to set up a topic that's crucial for where we're going in this series, and that is the topic of betrayal. Betrayal, an act of deliberate disloyalty or deception perpetuated by someone we trust. Now, betrayal is something we've all experienced as human beings, and it's one of those painful experiences we can have. It's a wound of the heart that by nature always blindsides us. We don't see it come. As Malcolm X put it best, to me, the thing that is worse than death is betrayal. You see, I could conceive death, but I could not conceive betrayal. Betrayal has this unique power to wound and to shock us. And thus, we shouldn't be surprised that it's played a crucial and critical role in human storytelling across the ages. It's an easy way to create conflict and surprise, to stir up emotion and intrigue within the audience. Loads of great stories and tales rely on epic betrayals at the center. I mean, it's why we'll always remember the great line from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, et tu Brute?" The betrayals that stick with me the most come from cinema because cinema has that unique way of capturing that brutal emotion of the betrayed. And it creates some of the most outrage-inducing scenes in all of human history. I will never forget the look on William Wallace's face when he's betrayed by his fellow Scottish noblemen and his friends are left to die. Or the scene that most scarred me as a kid, forgive the pun, Oh, it still gets me today. It still gets me. But for me, these aren't the worst scenes of betrayal. In each, there's previous character development in the movie that had already made me suspect that these characters were not trustworthy or potentially villainous. No, you see, the most shocking, gut wrenching, heartbreaking betrayals, at least for me, were the ones that I didn't see coming, the ones that are grounded in the betrayal. Of values I believed a character held up until the moment that the betrayal took place. The ones that turn upside down who we thought a character was before the act. The most famous is from The Godfather Part 2. I want to roll that clip.
1: There's a plane waiting for us to take us to Miami in and out. They'll make a big thing about it. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart.
0: I mean, this is one of the most epic betrayals in movie history. Michael Corleone confronting his brother Fredo after he realizes that Fredo has betrayed him and almost got him killed. Really, though, the heartbreak of the scene comes from the fact that Fredo has betrayed everything that we as the audience believed him and his family stood for family, loyalty, brotherhood, which then Michael betrays spoiler when he has Fredo killed. But the one that hits me the hardest is from one of my favorite movies, The Social Network. Now, if you haven't seen The Social Network, it's a quasi fictionalized retelling of Facebook's creation. And it was created by co-founders Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Savarin. Mark's only true friend, the one who helped him start Facebook and was with him from the beginning. And there's a betrayal at the center of this movie that's heartbreaking. I just want to run that clip too, because it is so powerful.
1: In late November, I got the email from Mark telling me to come out for the millionth member party. What else did the email say? It said that we had to have a business meeting, that Mark and Sean had played some kind of revenge stunt on case equity and that Manningham was so impressed that he was now making an investment offer that was hard to turn down. So I went to California, and I went straight to the new offices. I didn't know whether to dress for the party or for the business meeting, so I kind of dressed for both. But it didn't matter. Why not? Because I wasn't called out there for either one. What were you called out there for? An ambush.
0: Mr. Sabra, hey.
1: First, I thought he was joking, giving me more contracts to sign. But then I started reading. What is this? Well, uh, as you know, we had some. New investors that have come. What in. is this? Mr. Sab. Mark! Mark! He's wired in. Sorry? He's wired in. Is he? Yes. How about now? you still wired in? You issued 24 million new shares of stock. You were told that if new investors came along- How much were your shares diluted? How much were his? What was Mr. Zuckerberg's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Mr. Moskowitz's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Sean Parker's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Peter Thiel's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. And what was your ownership share diluted down to?
0: 0.03%. You signed the papers. You set me up. You're going to blame me because you were the business head of the company and you made a bad
1: business deal with your own company. This is going to be like I'm not a part of Facebook. It won't be like you're not a part of Facebook. You're not a part of Facebook. My name's on the masthead. You might want to check again.
0: I mean, this scene hits me. You know Mark's not great at this point in the film, and you know that something does go wrong, but this moment where he cuts Eduardo out hits like a ton of bricks. The look on his face, the realization of how thoroughly he's been manipulated and betrayed, I mean, it kills me. There's something about a character betraying who we think they are when it matters most that feels worse than almost anything. And that is crucial to what we're focusing on during this Lent journey. We're going to look at a section from Matthew 23 that includes a warning from Jesus about how God's people can betray who they're supposed to be when it matters most. How they can betray the kingdom through developing blind spots about their brokenness, through spiritual blindness, that if we are not aware of it, can co-opt their pursuit of God and undermine their integrity in dangerous and subtle ways. Now, to understand this warning, we need to set up our section, which covers Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 36, because it's quite frankly the most hostile section of Jesus's teachings. Out of context, it's easy to read this section as a scary, angry Jesus rant. But in context, it's much more. See, before it, Jesus, over the course of the first 20 chapters of Matthew, has come into escalating conflict with Israel's religious leadership, especially these two groups, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Hold on to that. And he's come into the conflict with them over how he's turned upside down their expectations for the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel that God had promised. They expected the Messiah to be a warrior king, come to defeat Rome, the enemies of God. And instead, Jesus comes as a king of peace, as a servant, preaching, loving your enemies. They expected him to bring the hammer of judgment on those they deem sinners. And instead, Jesus ate with them and invited them into his kingdom. Over and over, Jesus subverts expectations and in doing so highlights that he believes they've missed who God is and who God calls and wants them to be as his people. And shockingly, these people in power don't like that much at all. Conflict that escalates and climaxes in a showdown that begins in Matthew 21, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as the Messiah acts out prophetically in the temple and begins publicly challenging Israel's religious leadership, giving them a critical warning that their misunderstanding of who God is and what his will for his people is, is something that's leading Israel towards disaster. Holy war with Rome that Jesus warns is a betrayal of who God wants his people to be a betrayal that will leave Israel in ruins. A warning that in Matthew 22, Israel's religious leadership responds to by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, plotting his betrayal, arrest, trial, and execution on a Roman cross, committing Israel to this path of destruction that Jesus laments at the end of Matthew 23, He laments, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from this moment at the end of Matthew 23 on, Jesus doesn't teach publicly again. It's his last public word, his final response to this betrayal and rejection of him as the Messiah and what it means for Israel. The last thing he says to the crowds before his crucifixion. In context, it's not an angry rant. It's his final heartbroken warning, plea, an invitation to go a different way for God's people. And in this light, the chapter takes on a whole different shape. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus urges the crowds to follow his example, not that of Israel's religious leadership, to practice what they preach, to be humble servants, not these warriors obsessed with punishment and war, to be a people who stay true to his upside-down values of peace that he's been preaching all building to verse 13, when Jesus confronts Israel's religious leadership one final time, proclaiming seven woes against them. Now, a woe is a very specific biblical term. You see, it was a mixed cry of compassion, sorrow, and challenge used by the Old Testament prophets to lament and mourn the paths of disaster that Israel's kings took Israel down when they rejected God's ways. It's the kind of thing that the prophet said as Israel was facing exile and would not listen. Jesus takes up this prophetic or prophetic mantle and with sorrow lays into Israel's religious leadership for a singular specific reason. And I want to sit with this first woe because it informs the other six, and it informs this reason that Jesus believes we have to hear, because it's the reason that he believes has led them to miss and reject the kingdom and his invitation right in front of them. We find this first woe in Matthew 23, 13, where Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And now this is a fascinating verse. Hypocrite, at least the Greek word, that is translated as hypocrite here, is a term for an actor in Greek culture. Someone who puts on masks to play different roles in a play or a production. And this is a scathing rebuke if you know who these two particular groups of religious leaders are. The Pharisees were a popular religious sect that believed strict observance of God's law was necessary for proper worship of Yahweh. They studied God's law and taught how to follow it by creating rules. Now, we hear the word rules and we think legalism and bad. But for the average Israelite in Jesus' time, the Pharisees were actually positive figures. You see, the Pharisees took the complex law of the Old Testament and broke it into clear, understandable rules to follow so that they could follow, honor, and follow God in their everyday life. Things like When the Sabbath tells you not to work, they would define what work is and isn't so you could actually honor the Sabbath and thus honor God. In other words, they made the law understandable for most Israelites, which was greatly appreciated. And the teachers of the law were religious lawyers of sorts. They studied the the details and the intricacies of the law in order to protect its integrity and to settle religious disputes when those broke out amongst God's people. Both of these were positive figures for many that would have been in Jesus's audience. All that to say, both placed the utmost importance on honoring God in the right ways with godly acts as he commanded in his word. And if following God in the kingdom of heaven was just about having right ideas, Jesus would have said, A plus, spot on, you got it. But what does Jesus know? Their planning. They're planning to have Rome execute him, to execute God's Messiah, to execute an innocent man simply because he has challenged their power and their beliefs. Jesus hears what they say, but when he looks at their actions and the heart behind those actions, he says, nice rules, nice beliefs, great visible acts that look religious, but it's a charade performance art, a mask that you're wearing covering deep inner brokenness. He says, you're actors in a play. You're not righteous. He sees this form of religion playing out in front of him that says all the right things yet totally misses the point that uses religion to put on a show for others while hiding the truth of what's really going on inside the hearts of the people practicing it. Something that, when fed enough, has made them blind. Blind to their real motivations and intentions, power, retaliation, greed, control, masking these things with religion and confusing them with God's will. Blind to who they are seeing themselves as the epitome of religious righteousness while being blissfully unaware of how deeply broken they are, blind to God right in front of them, missing Jesus's invitation to heart change, which is what kingdom religion was always meant to be about. And Jesus calls a spade a spade. He calls this what it is, religious hypocrisy, presenting a religious image when beneath the facade, they're spiritually bankrupt as evidenced by their actions in the world and the hearts that those actions flow out of. And Jesus sees this as the ultimate betrayal of who they're called to be as God's people, as leaders of God's people. Look at what he says. Their religious hypocrisy not only keeps them from entering the kingdom when they're invited to it by Jesus, but it also prevents others from entering it too. It leads people who trust them, who look to them for spiritual guidance away from the very thing that they were tasked and given the responsibility for leading people towards their rejection, their betrayal, their path of war, their missing of what God wants to do in and through them. It is all grounded in spiritual blindness created by the feeding of religious hypocrisy, according to Jesus. And turning religion, something that was meant to transform us into the kingdom of God, turning that religion into a mass to cover brokenness, rather than seeing it, naming it, and letting God heal it. Religious hypocrisy that leads them without even realizing it to betray the deepest values they profess. The deepest values that God called them to have and to overflow with harm onto themselves, others, and their Messiah standing right in front of them. The Messiah that they can't even see. Religious hypocrisy. This underlies each woe that follows. In each, Jesus points to a good invitation from God and his story that through religious hypocrisy, we so often distort and abuse for the wrong reasons. Six ways that God's people let spiritual blindness develop that then keeps them from entering into and representing Jesus's kingdom. And y'all, that preaches. How often do we miss out on transformation because we're hiding behind mass. Because in our preoccupation with self image, we embrace external holiness over actual life change, hiding our brokenness and missing the invitation of transformation through God's love and grace, choosing instead to hide and stay broken, then be healed, no matter what it costs or who it harms. How often has the church caused wounds in its blindness Failing to look for a name and root out its own hypocrisies, saying one thing but producing its opposite in the world, and hurting people in the process, how often have we failed to realize that many people's first impression of Jesus comes not through a book but through us, and our refusal to experience kingdom healing and our brokenness and our tribalism and our judgmentalism and our pride? In choosing a righteous mask over righteous living, how often does that end up misrepresenting Him and shutting the door of the kingdom in people's faces who need Jesus most? How often do we, without even meaning to betray ourselves and who we are called to be because we just don't want? To be honest about who we are, where we need help, where we've missed it, where we've been wrong, where we know we need to surrender and be healed. Am I preaching yet? Y'all, this hits home for me. As someone who desperately wants to follow Jesus and see myself and others in this world healed, I need to hear that message, even though it's hard. Wearing masks, Religious hypocrisy has played a crucial role in the times in my life where I've missed, rejected, and betrayed the kingdom of God, even when I didn't know I was doing it, when I have let hidden wounds overflow onto others and create tragedy. Jesus knows I need to hear this hard truth, not for shame, but because he knows I cannot heal in what I cannot. Name and I cannot invite others into a kingdom of healing if I haven't entered into it myself. We must be willing to see ourselves as we are, to name and lay down at the cross this brokenness if we want to experience Jesus' resurrection and new life on Easter. But here's the beautiful hope-filled, grace-filled truth of this challenge. And Jesus' kingdom taking off the mask isn't the end of our story. It's not the moment in which we fade away. It's the first step of it, the first step towards kingdom life and resurrection on the other side of what feels like death. And the shadow of the cross we're invited to lay down our preoccupation with image management and experience God's love for us as we are, all of us. In the light of Easter, we're invited to experience resurrection and what we so desperately want to hide. In the light of God's grace... We can find new life right where we are and become people who by grace can be honest about who they are, unafraid to be seen in their perfection because they know that their God has seen them fully. He has met them in those spaces and he has invited them into his kingdom anyway, as they are if they would just say yes to it. Lent reminds us that if we're open, willing, and honest... Grace can resurrect us into people who truly accept the kingdom invitation and reflect the kingdom, not through rules, but by becoming it here and now. People, not with religious hypocrisy, but with kingdom integrity in their lives. That's the invitation underneath the challenge of Matthew 23. And to embrace it, we just have to be willing to follow Jesus to the cross, to take off our mass, to name where we've missed the mark, to lay down who we wish we were and want people to think we are, even if we're not, to surrender our religious hypocrisies at the foot of the cross, to find kingdom, integrity, resurrected on the other side of Easter. That's the invitation. And this will set the course for our Lent journey. Each week, we're going to look at Matthew 23's woes. And again, not for shame, not to hear Jesus angrily rant at us, but to see how it invites us to let Jesus heal our blindness, open our eyes, and teach us to fast from religious hypocrisy in order to fast to kingdom, integrity, and the most important part of our lives. I invite you to join me in that, to join me in this Lent journey, to join me in looking intensely at Jesus in his journey to Good Friday. And while doing so, praying to be shaped into people who can truly be like him and how we practice what we preach when it matters most. And that's good news. Amen. Amen. Amen.